BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Tuesday, September 12, 2023. Here's a headline uh, in the paper to give you a sense of what's going on in the world before I conduct the interview. That'll probably have absolutely nothing to do with the headline uh, that I'm about to recite. This one is just so in the world of bizarre. Uh, sometimes I just read the headlines in the newspapers, ladies and gentlemen, and say to myself, Man, this is a freaky world. Uh, Draft Kings apologize for 9-11 sports betting promotion. So a 9-11, supposedly a sacred day uh, in America, where we uh, just think about what went down in twenty in 2001 with the attacks on the World Trade Tower, the Pentagon, etc. cetera. Uh, Draft Kings, which is a sports betting company, uh, put out a parlay bet. Uh, a theme, a 9-11 theme promotion that required three New York-based teams, the Yankees and Mets and Jets, to win their game. Uh, it's in, linked to the 22nd anniversary of the attacks on World Trade Center and Pentagon and the downing of a passenger jet. After the outcry on social media from people offended by the promotion titled Never Forget, that's what the promotion was called, Never Forget, uh, Drafts King took it down and apologized, quote, we sincerely apologize for the featured parlay that was shared briefly in commemoration of 9-11. We respect the significance of this day for our country and especially for the families of those who are directly affected. I, there's just so much insincerity uh, embedded in that apology. How did they think in any way offering that parlay, that bet, was uh, com- a commemorative act for the people who lost their lives in uh, in 2001. I just like, I, I don't know. Sometimes words escape me here. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself, and they were going to take the deep dive uh, and have a conversation that I'm eagerly awaiting. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hi. It's actually the first time I've ever actually introduced myself on a podcast. This is actually quite interesting. My name is Alex. I directed Unprecedented, which is a three-part series, where I got access to Donald Trump and his family uh, throughout the 2020 election and the aftermath. Yes. And uh, so folks chronicling uh, 
that Ben Jarofsky shows adventures into the world of unprecedented, uh, this movie, it began, just remind everybody, with an interview I was doing with two comedians regarding Hoop Dreams 2, this very funny 10-minute mockudrama, a docudrama that they made, uh, <laughs> which I urge everybody to watch. It's hilarious. Uh, and then they mentioned to me uh, that Michael Krama, the, the man who filmed it, uh, had worked on pre- unprecedented. I said, oh, my God, get me Michael. I got Michael. I interviewed him. And then he said, I think I get you Alex, the director. I said, oh, my God, get me Alex. <laughs> so I owe this all to Hoop Dreams 2. Thank you very much, uh, Aiden <laughs> and uh, Liam, for making that happen. All right, Alex. Wow. I read about you. I knew about you here in little Chicago, uh, it, it, the flyover country, as they uh, call it. Uh, I read and I followed your, your, your making of the movie. I followed the, when you got called before the congressional hearing. I followed the interviews that you gave with Time and the New York Times, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, and I really never thought I'd have you on my humble little podcast, but here you are. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for um uh, showing up. Let's start with the uh, the first question. Okay, so this is a movie in which you got unprecedented, no uh, pun intended, I guess it is intended, uh, access to the Trumps. And folks, this is a very young man I'm looking at. I could see him. You can't. And uh, he's British. You could tell by the accent. And so the first question everybody always has when uh, you're asked to talk about your movie how in the world did you, a 33-year-old Brit, or you're probably 32 or 31 at the time, get Donald Trump to agree to give you so much access? Go. I mean, you know, I think I, in some ways I, I need a better answer to this question. I mean, it, you know, it was it, it, there was a, probably a few factors. I mean, the truth is I don't know. I don't know why he said yes, right? And I think that the that my answers have always been what I speculated. And so... It's, you know, this is a guy who has no political skin in the game. Uh, you know, this is a guy who's British and they generally do like Brits. I mean, the Trump specifically have a, an affinity for some reason to British people. Um, and I, and also I was introduced to them by a mutual friend. So, you know, with all those components, um, it allowed for them to, you know, to say yes. And I think probably the most important part was also that they generally thought they would win the election. I mean, some of them obviously still do think they've won, but at least when I met them in August of 2020, it was you know, immense hubris that they were going to, to win uh, and win you know, more significantly in their minds than they had in 2016. So there was this uh, real confidence and it was like, oh, this guy who we, you know, we, we've been told is, um, is a friend of a friend and he makes documentaries and he's British and we're going to win. And no, obviously we're going to let him come along and, and film everything. Um, and uh, and that's what happened essentially. I mean, it, you know, these things always take time. There's a lot of conversations you need to have with people. Uh, but uh, but for me, the, the most interesting thing of all of this wasn't so much going to the access. It was more to make it clear to them that there was no scenario where they would have any control over the project. So they would have no editorial decisions. They would have no no sort of authority whatsoever in terms of what we would or wouldn't include. And normally, that's quite difficult to agree anyone anyone to agree on this i mean especially politicians and and, um, and celebrities so that really didn't come up at all i mean they really didn't have an issue with that because i think they're so egotistical and they're so obsessed with themselves that there really isn't a, sort of the mindset of we could do something bad or stupid or that's something that we don't like and we wouldn't want to include didn't even enter into their minds 
now I imagine, well, I know they were obviously quite angry that uh, January 6th was involved in in the documentary. It's like, well, you guys kind of caused that and it's part of the story. And, you know, we uh, maintained our access to you, you know, during that and after as well. So, um, so you know, it is, it is what wow. it is. So you never had a negotiations or did you have a negotiations with Donald Trump himself uh, and which he said, look, kid, I want a, a full a control of this documentary. And you had to say, in all due respect, Mr. President, you're not going to get that uh, control. Did you actually have those kinds of discussions? No. So, so it's interesting is that actually I've never ever told anyone this before, but he did actually he did call me kid. Um, which was actually, which was very interesting. Um, on the after the first uh, interview, I was sort of you know hyperventilating after you know the the sitting president of the United States is just basically you know is destroying democracy in real time in the White House and you know saying all the crazy things he was saying during that interview and I'm, he sort of says see you later kid and I was just like what like that was a bit of an interesting uh, I mean you've got secret service everywhere and you've got the guy with the nuclear football and you've got you know him Donald Trump standing right there and you're in a small area and very hot and and he's like you know see you later kid i mean it was uh, pretty uh, pretty interesting but no you don't really negotiate with him i mean he's he doesn't really let you talk you know in in normal sort of conversation i mean obviously in, in interviews it's very different to normal conversation but in a normal conversation with him i mean it's not really ever normal he doesn't really let you talk he just wants you to agree with what he's saying so you know he'll come up to you and sort of and he doesn't he's known for being a germaphobe he does like to get quite close it's like a power thing so and he's a big guy, so he gets really close. And he sort of just talks at you, and then he will expect you just to say yes, sir. You know, three bags full. You know, like or oh, oh, I totally agree with you. I totally agree. So he wants that constant adoration and the constant sort of agreement with his position all the time. Uh, so you, know, you negotiate with other people. I mean, it was mainly his kids. Um, that's really how um, sort of how it all happened. So of, of the kids who were uh, negotiating, who, which one was the one that you felt was driving the bus? Which one was the one you thought that was most in charge? In terms of what, the, the campaign well, or in terms of the terms, uh, Well, both, actually. But, you know, in terms well, of trying to, like, nail you down to an agreement. I mean, uh, again, it really wasn't like that. I mean, the one that was probably the most interested in it was Eric. Um, so Eric was the one that was the most interested in the project uh, and the one that was most easy to talk to. The other two were... Uh, um, were, were more um, were more difficult uh, to have conversations with, but Eric was the most normal of the three. Uh, and you know what? And hearing that first uh, riff you went on about how uh, Trump likes to just talk, doesn't really care what you have to say. It momentarily deviating from the conversation. I gives me. I wouldn't. I can't believe I'm saying this. A little more respect for Kanye West. I don't know if you ever saw the footage of Kanye West in the White House uh, where you sat. I think. Uh, lecturing Donald Trump, going off in this incredible riff, and then they cut to the look at Donald Trump, and he's nodding his head. Donald Trump doesn't even know what to say to Kanye West. I urge everybody to go back and check. Jim Brown, the legendary football player, is standing off to like the left. Have you ever seen this, Alex, with Kanye West speaking to Donald Trump? I have. That I was one. Yeah, I, I, just, I think Kanye West definitely um, has a, more of an advantage than I do in terms of getting Donald Trump to listen. <laughs> Man, Donald Trump just shut up and let Kanye go, and he's looking at him going, this guy's even crazier than I am. Uh, all right, uh, which is, I don't know if that's true, actually. Uh, all right, so you said they were filled with hubris in August of 2020 when you first approached them uh, as we came down. Uh, the stretch uh, in, the, in the presidential campaign, they thought for certain they were going to win. 
What was the reason for this confidence? I mean, look, you know, they, they always think they're going to win, right? I mean, that's not, I, I don't think that was at all novel. They really genuinely, they, this is the thing with them. The, the, the evidence doesn't really matter. Facts don't matter, right? What, what matters is how they, you know, how they feel. And to them, it's like, oh, well, obviously we're going to win when there's 50,000 people applauding us on the stage um, and no one's going out and applauding Joe Biden. Now, the reason why no one's going out is because it was COVID and Joe Biden was you know, running his campaign in a you know, non-contact way, right? With very minimal uh, rallies, whereas the Trump campaign, I mean, rules were tossed out so you know they 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 see this adoration which they have i mean it is quite a spectacle for sure i mean tens of thousands of people screaming and shouting their names you know clapping yelling crying etc um you know it's very difficult to to disassociate that from you know the numbers right i or the numbers are saying we're doing really badly but look we've got all this now obviously it's ridiculous to think that the reason why you're you've won or you're going to win is because there's so many people turning up at your rallies Obviously, that's absurd. But these guys, that's what they, uh, that's what they generally uh, believe. They wouldn't listen to, um, to alternative voices, you know, sort of voices of reason. They were always just listening to people that um, agreed with their own position from the outset and also their sort of emotional responses to what they saw and experienced. I, I would actually say, I'm going to put this to you, get your thoughts, uh, that in a twisted, weird way, uh, this delusional aspect of Donald Trump is actually a strength. So, for instance, he'll take a look at the picture. This is before you came on the scene of the inauguration of Barack Obama and the inauguration of Donald Trump. And they said, you clearly see more people at the inauguration of Barack Obama. And he'll claim there were more people at my inauguration. Like he, the, the evidence is contrary to what he says, and he says it anyway. And. This is an aspect of Donald Trump that I've noticed since he took the big stage. He's absolutely convinced, or let me strike that. I'll get to that quick. He's delusional. He doesn't care what is in his face, what he is seeing at that moment. He will express or articulate uh, a worldview that is completely contradicted by the evidence. And he doesn't care. Uh, and I believe that has got him far in the world. That's delusional aspect. Your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it reminds you of the story of the emperor's new clothes, right? I mean, you know, he is, you know, the picture of the inauguration is that everyone can see there's less people at his and there's more of the others, right? But yet he'll still maintain the position. And, and the reason for that is because he, you know, a good liar is someone whose lie doesn't get found out, right? He doesn't care. He's not lying in the sense of trying to be a good liar. He's, he's lying barefaced, and yet, and it's so easy to see that what he's saying isn't true. And yet, he maintains this all the way through his entire career, his history, his life. Why is that? Because he has this position, which is, whatever I say is right. right? I have to be right. I'm always right. No one else is right. I'm the only one that's right, and everyone else is wrong. So he just sort of maintains the position. He never backs down. He'll never accept that he's wrong, ever. And so, you know, he, you know, in his mind... Obviously, there's more people at his inauguration, even though there isn't, and even though you can show him the photo, and it, and it is a delusion. Now, when I've said that in the past, people get upset because, you know, the whole, all the, all the various um, accusations and, and his uh, various uh, charges and criminal uh, trials are coming up, you know, there's this sort of need for uh, an, an intent, right, rather than uh, you can't argue that you didn't know. I mean, like, you have to say that he actually knew that he was lying. And for me, it's, you know, everyone, a lot of people who do bad things, they know they're doing bad things. 
right? But so it doesn't mean that they didn't intend to do it. They think what they're doing is correct. They, or, or at least in their mind, they've justified that action, right? That doesn't mean, therefore, you're uh, innocent or that you can't be found guilty. So I think, you know, with Trump, he genuinely, you know, believes in all the madness that he says uh, because he isn't in the same realm as, uh, as you and I. You know, he lives in another world, a completely, a really dangerous world. Uh, and that's, that's a big problem. Well, see, I, I'm going to push back with you, or at least get you challenged mm. on that. Mm. And now, of course, you have an advantage I don't have. You actually sat in a room with the man twice, right? Twice? Am I getting yeah, three, right? three twice. times. Three times. Three times. Okay, three yeah. times. Uh, yeah, right. There was a time in New Jersey. Uh, and um, so you've actually been in the room with him. I've never been in a room with Donald Trump, okay? Uh, and although I have watched quite a bit of footage of him. And um, I don't believe he believes the the BS he's spewing. Mm-hmm. I, I, so, for instance, Donald Trump is uh, has said he won the election. It was stolen from him. He has said it over and over again, even though there's no evidence to support it. He says that the way he says there are more people in a photo of his inauguration than a photo of Barack Obama's. Okay, even though it's he's obviously stating something that's wrong. Um. I, I believe whether he actually believes it is the, of secondary importance, uh, no matter how much his supporters want to make it important because they think it's the way they're going to he's going to get off at trial. Um, I, I believe that truth does not matter to Donald Trump. So the notion of whether he believes uh, that he won the election over Joe Biden is uh, largely irrelevant. The point is he is compelled to state that to achieve what he wants. So it is a, a, a tactic or a tool to get what he wants and what he actually believes is irrelevant. And personally, for what it's worth, I think he's in his mind. He doesn't believe what he's saying. Your response? Yes, no, I totally agree. I think that uh, the question as to whether or not he believes in what he says I don't really think matters so much, uh, at least from my perspective. I mean, it was obviously always the question people asked because I've been in the room with him during this time of all these events unfolding. And so was he really, did he really believe in what he was saying? And to me, it's like, you know, if so I didn't think before I met him that he believed in what he was saying. I always thought it was always, you know, just his mantra. And then I did, when I came out of the first interview, believe that he uh, that he really did believe what he was saying. And the reason why that mattered for me at that moment was because this is really dangerous. This guy is going to do everything he can. He's going to use all the apparatus and the power of the presidency to try and maintain his position and stay in power. And that's terrifying. And so, you know, does it really matter? Like, does Trump believe, genuinely believe that his inauguration had more people in it than Barack Obama's? I mean, the fact that you can, that he even holds up the photo which shows less people, and he still maintains the position. The question is, okay, well, what is he gaining here? Why? He just looks like an idiot, right? But then, you know, and then it's just, like, the only reason he didn't look like an idiot with respect to the election is because he was a president and he was doing these crazy things that were, you know, I mean, obviously it was idiocy, but it's incredibly dangerous. I mean, you wouldn't you'd say he was a bad man in that situation, right? So it was like, if you don't really believe in what you are saying, it's very difficult to justify the actions that you are doing, which are really bad things, right? I mean, you know, sort of breaking the foundations of, of democracy and then you know, encouraging a crowd of 
tens of thousands of people to come to DC and then, you know, thousands of them to go into the capital. I mean, I was there. I mean, Michael was there. We saw it was apt and we we predicted it was going to happen. I mean, it was it wasn't a you know, I mean, nothing with Trump is ever um, uh, sort of a surprise. You, you always know it's going to happen. I mean, everyone knew it was going to happen with the election. I mean, people were talking about it, you know, well before uh, sort of the COVID uh, came about, or the moment COVID came about, everyone knew he was going to start attacking the validity of postal ballots, you know, the mail-in ballots. And even in 2016, he went on a whole rant about how he wouldn't accept uh, the 2016 election unless he won. Uh, so, you know, he's very predictable. Yet at the same time, when he actually follows through with the things that you expect, it's always still quite horrific. And, you know, so for me, it was the idea that he genuinely was going to act on the things that he was saying was very scary and the other point is is that he is a delusional character he is a person who is on another plane of existence in his mind and this is not only my take I mean, this is what the attorney general said when he was being interviewed by the january 6 congressional committee bill mark bill barr said that he was detached from reality I mean, what does that mean i mean detached, as in you know he's showing you the piece of paper he's showing you the photo you know he's showing you the facts there is no evidence whatsoever to support any of the claims you're making and yet you just maintain the same nonsense that you are that you've been saying for, for a while. And then you find people, crackpots, who are then going to agree with you. And then you can say, oh, well, you know, this guy agrees with me, so therefore he's right and you're wrong. I mean, yeah, it, 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 is, it is very, very, it is very scary. The ideology behind Donald Trump is Donald Trump, right? So he believes in himself and in him, in him, in his essence and everything about him. And so, you know, a lot of the time, you know, extreme ideologies that people believe in end in, you know, in, in tragedy. And, and that's what happened here. You know, people died because of his so, madness. Uh, I want to go back to, to that interview, uh, the, the interviews you conducted and get a sense of what's in the room. But at this very moment, you, you, you took me to a point. I have to ask this question. So here we are psychoanalyzing Donald Trump as to whether he believes the clear lies that he's spouting. Uh, the inaccuracies that he's espouting and that you could see are inaccurate, <laughs> uh, but he spouts them anyway. Uh, and uh, we've attributed that to uh, a delusional desire to do whatever it has to take to uh, achieve whatever goal he wants to make. What do you think is motivating the people who support him? Follow me on this. He has the support of roughly, I've seen polls varying, 60% of the Republican electorate expected to vote in the Republican primaries of next year, 60, 60% of Republican voters in the United States of America have dedicated themselves to supporting a man who is clearly delusional, who tells them uh, the sun is out when it's night who tells them the moon, the sun rises uh, in the west and sets in the east. So what does this say, in your humble opinion, about 60% to 70% or what it is of Republican voters who still support him? No, I think there's, there's lots of different reasons why people support Donald Trump. I think they've changed over time. But overall, there's this sort of a lack of this idea that the establishment is bad and he's an anti-establishment you know, character even though he is really now without question part of the establishment um you know i think that he says things out loud that people have always kept quiet and they give you know he's if he says it therefore it's okay to say it i think there's also this feeling that 
yeah, people have been ignored by the mainstream sort of political outfits that have been around, obviously, for decades, whether it's, you know, parties. I mean, you know, this, this is the thing. Like, do the people who are ardent supporters of Donald Trump, do they subscribe to Republican positions or do they subscribe to Donald Trump? You know, and I think that's really interesting. Like, i.e., if Donald Trump were to say, I'm not going to run in the Republican primaries, I'm actually going to set up my own party. I'm going to call it the MAGA party. You know, what would happen? I mean, yeah, I think there's a very significant percentage of people who are supporting the Republican Party by virtue of the fact that Donald Trump is in the Republican Party. So, you know, there's a real cult of personality here versus party, which I think is very unique. Uh, and, and Trump is also very good at speaking to people on stage and communicating. He is, he is excellent at it. I, I know I never really understood it, but when you go to a rally and you see him do his thing, it is very interesting. You know, he'll, he'll start talking about something. He'll hear that the audience, the reaction isn't as loud or what he expected. So he'll immediately pivot somewhere else to get the adoration and the applause. And so he tailors what he's saying to the feeling of the crowd. So he really does understand that. And it is an amazing thing to see. I mean, it's like a rock concert. I mean, people are really, uh, they adore him. Uh, so, no, I think it's very much Donald Trump versus the Republican Party. And, you know, it's, it's always a question why you know, people see him as being someone who's always been attacked by everyone and therefore, um, you know, we are going to go against sort of you know, the mainstream and, and support him uh, because we think that he's been given an unfair hearing or, you know, or, I mean, there's, there's so many different factors. There's also, you know, feelings of anxiety that people have about the way the country is uh, is going, the way, the way America is going. And I think no one's really answering those questions. And, uh, and he is giving incredibly um, you know, basic um a lot of times racist answers to these questions and uh, people jump on them. They're very easy. You know, he, he's the typical demagogue. I, I having heard you uh, just talk, I realize that he has a talent uh, and it's a talent that has come to him relatively late in life. The man is what, 77 years old. He's been doing this now uh, for eight years. So I don't think anyone could have predicted he'd be so good at speaking to a crowd uh, to being able to detect the slight, uh, tremors in the crowd that indicate he has to shift from what he was saying to something else to feel and read that crowd so well to to be to be able to command a crowd i don't think anybody would have predicted that in 2015 uh and here we are uh and he uh, he has captured the minds of roughly 40 percent of the population at least but, but i will um, also say that he's captured the mind of more i mean you know there is an absolute and there's always been since he's been on the in the political playing field. He's been, everyone's been obsessed with him. I mean, the media have been totally and utterly obsessed with Donald Trump from beginning to end, all the way through the Republican primaries in 2015 and, and then obviously uh, in the uh, election itself. And then obviously following that, constantly obsessed with him. And now, I mean, you, you'll have you know, all these uh, cable news you know, with helicopters and showing live feeds of, 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 of four you know, big black escalades going down a a road to say that, and obviously, yes, it's a big deal for the president's being indicted, but you know, it, it's, it's just such a, a, a Hollywood-esque type um, sort of mentality here in terms of covering it, and, and there really is that. Clearly, it must sell, right? I mean, otherwise they wouldn't. Um, but there is an obsession amongst, uh, amongst everyone about, about Donald Trump. Yeah. 
I have some friends uh, who are lefties, far, uh, and they'll go, I, Trump is insignificant. It's a system that matters. I am not wasting another time talking about Trump. I'm like, uh, hello, you can ignore him. But he could be elected again. So it's, I'm not quite sure if the obsession's there uh, because they're obsessed with the game he plays or if the obsession's there because he is controls 43% of the population. So it's a... If you understand what I'm saying, I don't know if it even matters, that distinction, but it's worth noting. All right, let me, let's go back to the room. And you're, uh, you're interviewing Donald Trump. Uh, and it's, who's in the room? It's you, Trump, Michael, and anybody else in the room? Yeah, we've got a sound um, engineer. We've got our lighting guys, gaffers. And there's a few people in there, plus uh, Secret Service and... Um, and a couple of his uh, like assistants. And so, do you have scripted questions that you have, or are you just going no, I, with? I tell you, the, I, mean, I can tell. I can tell you the whole uh, the whole sort of story. I mean, number one, it was we. I was meant to interview him on Air Force One a few weeks earlier, and uh, so we were on Air Force One with him going to a rally, and we were meant to interview him on the plane. And uh, his chief of staff came up to us and said uh, he couldn't do the interview because he was uh, had to take a, a call, which. I understand was with um, Vladimir Putin at the, on, on that uh, particular day, but anyway, um, so we didn't do the interview, and then obviously the, uh, the election happened, and then he lost, and he you know, completely barricaded himself in the White House, and no one was getting access to him. And I was like, "All right, what the heck are we going to do?" And anyway, we uh, I get a phone call on uh, sort of the weekend saying that the interview's happening, and uh, it was quite a funny moment where I text, you know, uh, Michael. Uh, on, uh, on WhatsApp saying, uh, we've got POTUS, um, which is quite a, a cool uh, message to, to send and get. And then we organised, obviously, all that. And then, but the truth is, I didn't think it would turn up. I mean, we obviously you know, went to the White House, and, and it's a very complicated process to, to, to go inside, as you can imagine. Um, I remember saying to one of the Secret Service guys, like on the outer perimeter, uh, he was like, uh, who are you here to see? And I was like, uh, the president of the United States, which is quite a cool moment you know, uh, to say that. Anyway, we, we get inside, we set up, and I've told this story before of how we really had no idea what the protocol was in the White House. And uh, normally the people filmed there are uh, people who've done it before. So like they're you know, people, whatever it's called, uh, 60 Minutes and all, the, all those kind of shows, uh, these people have done it before, so they know what the setup is. So we didn't, and... Uh, Michael moved a chair, and uh, and then one of the ushers in the um, one of the White House staff people uh, went berserk. And but actually, he he didn't. He was so taken aback that Michael moved the chair that he was actually sort of not speaking. He just sort of opened his mouth and closed it. And then and I was like, what that's going on? And then uh, and then eventually he's like, don't touch the chair. And then Michael, being Michael's such a sweet guy, he puts the chair back, and the guy's like, no, 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 do not touch the chair. Abraham Lincoln sat on that chair or something, which is just very funny. Uh, there's also another story, which I don't think I've ever uh, mentioned, which is uh, while this is all going on. Um, so uh, con- I just actually quit smoking just two weeks ago. Uh, but back then I was smoking like a chimney and I needed a cigarette. And that guy actually uh, who um, yelled at us uh, said he would take me around the back to, ha- to have a cigarette. Uh, so anyway, he takes me around the back of the White House. I'm having a cigarette outside. And then for about half an hour, I was petrified. I hadn't stopped the cigarette out, and I'll be another Brit responsible for burning the place down. Um, so, like, you know, it was a quite stressful experience. I should have probably not had a cigarette. But, um, and then, uh, and then we were waiting. I was pretty calm about this all because, again, I just didn't think this was you know, going to happen. 
and then suddenly we see more and more secret service sort of uh, in the uh, in the area. It's a beautiful part of the building. It's the uh, the east part of the uh, West Wing, or the West Wing, the east part of the White House, and beautiful red flooring, uh, uh, carpets, and there was uh, Christmas trees everywhere. It was very nice. And then lots of secret services start coming around, and then I hear them say "Mogul on the move," and that's his uh, his code name. And so, you know, I knew that he was uh, he was coming anyway. He sort of comes in, and and it, there is a moment of like, you know, sort of holy shit! You know, this is the president of the United States um, sitting, you know, a few feet away from you, and 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 then, you know, it, it wasn't lost to me. So you know, on the one dollar bill, there's that that portrait of George Washington. So that original portrait hangs in that room that we did the interview. And so there's George Washington looking down, literally down at Donald Trump, who is still the incumbent sitting president, just going off on how Biden didn't win and the whole thing's a conspiracy and that you know, Georgia is, you know, needs to re, you know, redo the election in Georgia. And, then, and, and if the uh, governor doesn't want to do that, then they should give it to the legislature because they're on his side. I mean, all this wacky, crazy stuff. And uh, and every time I try to move away from the election and keep coming back to it, all he wanted to do is just say how there was no way that Joe Biden got the number of votes that he got and that he actually had won. And he was really saying, you know, we're going to go to the Supreme Court and do this case, this case, this case. And, and you know, it just, the, the irony, perhaps, or just the, the, the tragedy of, of the situation was, was that you know, this is, you know, the, the 45th uh, president of the United States uh, saying this this stuff. And, and it, was, uh, it was very it was just terrible. Wow. It's insane. Uh, you had your moment where you were Trump and he was Kanye West. Uh, yeah. Where he, 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 he's, uh, <laughs> that's your moment, man. And, moment, uh, yeah. Again, shout out Kanye West. You're the only guy ever. Trump's like, look at him go, you're crazier than I am. And I'm pretty cre- freaking crazy. Yeah. Uh, all right. I, I, I've been urging people to check out uh, the documentary. Uh, and um, so I'll, I'll say it again. Check it out. Good stuff in there. And let's just briefly talk about your appearance before the congressional hearing. I, what in the world could you have provided them that they didn't already have? I mean, I have no idea. I mean, all I know is, is that I think they were just astonished that after how many, it was every year worth of investigation, they were already taken aback, but they didn't know about the existence of this uh, project. Um, and um, to me, it was inevitable that they would uh, at some point be reaching out because we were there on January 6th and they were looking at all the people that were filming um, at the event at that, um, on that day. So, you know, I think it was, in my mind, it was inevitable that they were going to reach out at some point. And, um, and I think that, you know, there were probably various things they were looking for. I mean, you know, I just asked their questions and gave them what they, uh, what they asked for. And, and um, I think some of the material was actually used in one of their presentations. Uh, but, um, but yeah, they were, my feeling was that they were really looking at all the various angles and all the things that were going on that led to this uh, to this day. So they were really putting a lot of effort into speaking to anyone that had any interaction with them or you know, the family and, and people around during that time. Uh, but it was definitely a, 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 a moment that I never thought would ever happen when I started this project. I probably should have, but I did not think I'd be uh, subpoenaed. And then uh, subsequently subpoenaed two more times, so. You you testified in front of them 
three times? Did you no, say so I was subpoenaed by um, the House of Representatives uh, Committee and then the Department of Justice investigation and also the Georgia investigation. But there I didn't, I didn't, um, for those two, they just asked for uh, materials, uh, so which we provided. Well, um, uh, I assume they had all that stuff anyway, but uh, whatever, I guess no uh, stone unturned. Uh, one of the interesting asides that came out uh, that Trump said during his conversation with you is not in the movie, but I read about it in the New York Times uh, and his uh, uh, weird riff on Jewish people. I wanted to tell folks uh, about that. Uh, and uh, again, Donald Trump's a, a strange person, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just saying. I'm just saying that, okay? Whatever your politics are, he's a very kind of a strange person uh, in so many ways. He clearly has an odd obsession uh, with Jewish people. Uh, so, Alex, why don't you talk about what Trump said? Go ahead. Sure. I mean, and I agree on, on the main point, which is, you know, Trump is very strange. I, mean, I always say he's, he's a really odd, odd man. Um, so, but, but this was in Bedminster, and um, you know, I was, uh, after the interview, he was chatting with some friends, and he, you know, at one point, stopped, and I was near where they were talking, and so he sort of stopped speaking. And then asked one of his friends uh, whether or not I was a good Jewish character, um, and, uh, and you know, i.e., that there's that you know you could potentially be a bad Jewish uh, character. And also, what on earth does you know religion have to do with uh, with what they were talking about, or, or, or me? You know, with you know, a good guy or not a good guy, perhaps. But you know, so there was the Jewish, and then also in the first uh, uh, interview, he was talking about Israel. And uh, he was saying how, because he knew that I was Jewish beforehand. Again, why that's necessary to know is sort of irrelevant. But either way, he knew that. And so he kept saying how I should be very grateful to him for his, uh, for moving the, uh, the embassy. And I was like, what on earth are you talking about? I mean, moving the embassy. And I'm thinking about, you know, I'm from London. I know that there was a new U.S. embassy that was moved in you know, the U.K. Uh, a few years ago. So I was like, what on earth are you... Uh, why should I be happy about that? And then he's like, you know, I moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to, to Jerusalem. I was like, okay. He's like, well, you're Jewish, therefore you should be applauding. And I was like, really? Like, you know, it, it's, it's that kind of thing where, you know, it, I mean, it, it, it is wrong. It's wrong to, to, to have these positions. And, and it's very old school. And it's not at all a, a defense. It's just he has this very old school, you know, pretty racist mentality that, you know, those kind of things were, I mean, they were never acceptable, right? But you would hear them more. He, he would always hear them, right? He would always be saying, you know, my lawyers are Jewish, right? Yeah. Like, you know, that kind of thing, right? Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so, you know, that was also very surprising. And, you know, when, you, when, you, when he says that, all the sycophants around him, they're all laughing and, you know, and it just sort of keeps him going and he thinks it's a good joke, you know? Um, so, you know, that was my experience. It, was, it, was, uh, it wasn't pleasant to hear that coming from him. You know, he's, he's just not careful about the way he talks or, you know, he doesn't, you know, he, he just, everything just sort of comes out, right? There's no filter. Yeah. He probably, I mean, you know, you talk about things he actually believes. We'll close with this. Uh, I don't believe he actually believes he won the election. I don't believe he actually believes there are more people in the photograph of his inauguration as opposed to Barack Obama's inauguration. Mm. I believe he can tell 
the difference between five people, let's say, in a picture and three people in a picture, okay? But I do believe in the back of his mind, he believes that there's something about Jewish people that makes them better lawyers. Mm. I do believe he believes that. I've heard him say stuff like this to groups. When he starts talking to groups of Jewish people, he's like, oh, you guys are good at counting. Yeah. (laughs) No, absolutely. He he does. Absolutely. Yeah, no question. I I, I totally agree with you on that. I think, you know, he thinks there's such a thing as a good Jew and a bad Jew, right? Yeah, like, you know, that's the, uh, that's definitely his, for sure. For sure. Yeah, no question. Yeah, does it mean that he, you know, harbors you know, ill wishes towards Jews, I have no idea, but it definitely doesn't, doesn't help when you have these ridiculous stereotypes that are very insulting and, uh, and, and very problematic and certainly not someone who should be uh, in the United States of America. Yeah. And, and what's even weird about his, his daughter married a Jewish man and has converted and she, the reason, the whole thing is so weird. Like I said, I'll, I'll end it where I began it. He's a very weird individual. Uh, his family's dedication and devotion to him uh, is falls into the realm of Dr. Freud material. Like, I'm not quite sure if they believe the stuff they say about Donald Trump or if they're so intimidated by him or they're worried about how they're going to be handled uh, when the uh, uh, when he passes uh, and they have to uh, with the divide whatever uh, fortune he has. Who knows what's true? with people who are so capable of lying. Well, and I think, there you are, Doc, go ahead. Yeah, I just think with respect to the kids, it's, it's not, I think it's more about the fact they just have always been craving for their father's attention and love, right, always. And, you know, I think they probably have never really had it and they still want it and they're still trying, or at least up until recently, they've all been really trying. And so uh, I think that's definitely an element of it. And, and so that's where their obsession with the father you know, comes in. It's like, oh, we're, we're going to do whatever we can to make him love me. And what's Jared Kushner's thing? Like, you interviewed him, too. Like, he's, Jared, you don't need Trump's adoration. You're, you're, you're not from Trump. So what's his deal? Why is he uh, hanging on there? Well, I mean, you know, his father-in-law wins the presidency, and he's like, well, you know, this is, sounds like a pretty cool job. Let's see if I can get involved. And yeah. I mean, look, the thing about him that struck me was how he had no ability to see how the only reason that he was in the position he was in was because he married the president's daughter, right? Like there's absolutely, there was none of that. He genuinely felt that he was there because he deserved it, which I thought was fascinating. I mean, obviously awful, but fascinating that he had that, the audacity to, to come across in that in that way, which I thought was pretty remarkable. Uh, but then other than that, he was a very unimpressive guy. I mean, very pleasant, you know, sort of in, in interactions, but uh, but not particularly uh, impressive um, as a you know, diplomat or politician. Or yeah. uh, but credit to him, I mean, he did obviously achieve the, um, the, you know, the peace deal in the Middle East, and, uh, which is uh, very much down to him uh, and others, but certainly down to him. So uh, he has that win. But, you know, for sure, uh, he, he did it because, you know, he was it's immense power and, and authority, right? You know, it's dangled in front of you, right? What a strange family. Anyway, uh, we did not discuss uh, what happened on January 6th. Uh, Alex and I would come to the end of the, our conversation, and that's because Michael and I, uh, the, the actual filmmaker, the man who, uh, the cinematographer, uh, the cameraman, whatever you want to call him, uh, and I did a, an hour-long conversation, which I urge everybody to check out if you haven't already, because Michael really takes us uh, into the heart of the matter. It's uh, very vivid. 
conversation. So I thought I'd stay away from that for this particular issue. A two-part uh, uh, series on uh, this is an important movie. I think you should watch it, ladies and gentlemen, so you have a sense of uh, who Donald Trump is and who our country is uh, thinking of uh, electing. I'll close uh, with giving you an opportunity to make a prediction of sorts, having spent all this t uh, time with Trump and thought about him and read about him and made a movie about him. Uh, what are the odds, the chances you think of him being reelected? Very low. Yeah, very low. I think there's more of a chance of him being in the jail cell than being the president of the United States. <laughs> or both, um, which would be interesting. Uh, doing that film. Uh, <laughs> uh, Alex, why don't you tell folks where they can see uh, your movie? They've heard about it. If they yeah. haven't seen it already, go ahead. Yeah, it's on, on Max. The, uh, it's now the, the new HBO Max has turned into Max. So you can watch it on Max. I'm pressing three parts. Yes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I know. I stumble with Max, too. Is it HBO Max or just Max? Um, anyway, uh, thank you very much, uh, Alex. I appreciate taking time. Can I ask one thing, just to add, whether you use it or not, is that you know, on, the, on Michael Cromit and January 6th, I have to say that he is, without question, one of the most brave individuals I've ever worked with and you know, one of my closest friends. And what he did that day and what he witnessed that day is, you know, is something that is very difficult to uh, fully articulate. And I'll say that you know, I was with him you know, both before and after and you know, the impact it had and I'll just say one thing which is I witnessed him uh, showing his father um, the series and uh, so we were we, we took a hotel um, together and him his dad and, and myself we watched the three parts before it came out before anyone else saw it and uh, I'll never forget the you know the moment where you know, Michael's father watches the footage that his son caught on that day and how both of them were you know, in tears and how emotional that moment was. And I, I actually left the room because I actually got quite emotional as well. You know, it was a horrific day, and, and it, but it was, it, it, for me, it proved how important, you know, people like Michael are. They'll just, you know, they, they'll get into dangerous situations to capture moments of history so people can, can see them and learn from them. And, and what he did that day was remarkable. And, and it will live with him forever, and, and the impact of it will live with him forever. But, you know, he's, uh, he, he's an amazing, amazing human and... and uh, what he did was a, a very important and special thing for, for America and humanity. I'm with you on that. Great stuff. Unbelievable stuff. Like <laughs> he's that kid's got guts, man. That's about oh, all I'll say. He oh, yeah. he goes right into it. He's not afraid. I mean, he may be afraid, but he, he conquered his fear. He he channeled his fear into something very productive. Mm -hmm. Uh and he tells a very he's a good storyteller, Alice. So the story he tells of everything that went down on January 6th. Again, I'll say it's really worth oh, uh, listening to it. And you're absolutely correct. Uh, that footage is very important. You got to see it. If you're going to go vote for Donald Trump, ladies and gentlemen, why don't you look at the footage? Why don't you look at Michael's footage and then decide, hmm, are you going to vote for this guy? Or are you going to be in as much denial as Donald Trump is and Jared Kushner is and all the rest? Of them? All right, Alex, I'm going to get off my high horse now. Uh, thank you very much Pleasure. for taking time really to fun. talk to us, all right? Yeah, always. All right, very good. That's Alex Holder. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Bye.